Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to the first of a series of summer special episodes of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. We had anticipated taking hiatus over the summer, but with so much happening in the world, we instead will be running a series of special episodes of the Digital HR Leaders podcast throughout the summer that provide an outside-in perspective on HR. These will shine a light on how initiatives such as psychological safety, empathetic leadership, job crafting, data-driven decision-making, and a more human-centric approach can drive innovation, creativity, inclusion, and ultimately success in our organizations during these turbulent times. I can't think of a better way of starting this series than by taking a closer examination at the concept of psychological safety. In a workplace, psychological safety is the belief that the environment is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. People feel able to speak up when needed with relevant ideas, questions, or concerns without being shut down in a gratuitous way. Psychological safety is present when colleagues trust and respect each other and feel able, even obligated, to be candid. Those are the words of Amy Ebenson, my guest on this edition of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Amy is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, author of The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth, and is currently ranked number three on the prestigious Thinkers 50 list. Amy's work on psychological safety famously formed the bedrock of Google's Project Aristotle study into what makes effective teams. In our conversation, Amy and I discuss the definition of psychological safety, what it is and what it isn't. We talk about the role of leaders and HR in creating psychological safety and the link between psychological safety and culture, learning and innovation. We talk about how to create psychological safety in virtual teams, and we look at the relationship between psychological safety and transparency. Also, Amy provides examples of organisations who have created an embedded psychological safety and the subsequent benefits they have enjoyed. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in the role culture, leadership and trust play in driving innovation and growth. So that's business leaders, chief HR officers, chief learning officers, and anyone in a people analytics, HR business partner, or talent acquisition role. So today I'm delighted to welcome Amy Edmondson, Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, uh, author and currently number three on the Thinkers 50 list to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Amy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. And can you provide listeners with a quick introduction to your background and current activities? Sure. You know, I'm a researcher and, and a teacher, and I've been at Harvard for over 20 years now. But I, I, I work with companies and students around the world to, to sort of think about culture and strategic human resources issues. Great. Well, as I said, it, we're, we're delighted to have you on the show. Um, your work on psychological safety was famously cited by Google um, in their research into what makes a great team. But what exactly is psychological safety? You know, it's a shared belief, right? It's a shared belief that the environment is conducive to interpersonal risks, like asking for help or admitting a mistake or criticizing a project. And that can be challenging to do. So this is the sort of sense that this is a special place where that kind of activity is okay. Now, it's not being nice or soft or, you know, guaranteed applause for everything you have to say. 
It's also not permission to whine and it's not uh, permission to slack off, right? It's a, it's a, a kind of very energizing, but, but, but candid place. So it's, it's almost, as you said, it's kind of creating that environment for people to speak up. Yes. Full stop, right? Easier said than done. Yes. Yes. So I suppose that leads to the next question. What steps should leaders take to create psychological safety? You know, to me, it, it starts with, and this is a, you know, in the midst of, of COVID, a good time to talk about this, because I think it starts with being utterly clear and transparent about what we're up against. Um, and specifically, I mean the enormous uncertainty and and complexity and challenge of what we face. And when leaders are, that's I call that setting the stage. And when you're setting the stage by reminding people of what you might argue we already know, but I think it still needs to be said, you're essentially setting the rationale for why their voice might be needed. Right? Clearly, anyone could see something that you miss or that others miss. So it's, it starts with setting the stage. But it's also about being proactive and inviting voice. You can't just say, well, gee, I'm really eager to hear from people, and I'm sure they know that. You have to be proactive. You have to say, what's on your mind? What are you seeing? What concerns do you have? What questions do you have? And, and just um, make it more difficult for people to remain silent than to speak up because you've issued those invitations. And then, of course, it really matters how you respond. You know, you, you, you must not shoot the messenger. When people come forward with ideas or, or bad news or anything else, you have to just take a deep breath and respond in a forward-looking, appreciative manner. And, and all of those things contribute to creating psychological safety. And I think when we spoke um, a couple of weeks ago in preparation, we talked about leaders being vulnerable. Yes. I mean, to me, all of those behaviors are vulnerable. But yes, let's emphasize that one. Let's, let's you know, underline it, if you will, because if we're all vulnerable, but if we don't want to be seen as vulnerable, we're in trouble. So leaders have to own their vulnerability, right? I mean, we're all vulnerable in the face of unprecedented challenges, situations. And when we name it, you know, when we're out there saying, wow, I need your help, that's a stance of vulnerability, but it's also a stance of invitation. And I suppose uh, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So if, if leaders are honest and, and admit that they need help, then then I guess they they can create not they can create a climate that employees can feel that way as well. Right. It, it's been said. I mean, Ed, Ed Catmull has a wonderful quote at the uh, president and co-founder of Pixar that, you know, as leaders, if you talk about your mistakes, it makes it safe for others to do likewise. And it couldn't be more important that leaders, by nature of the role, have to go first, right? If you sort of say, gee, I want people to be vulnerable and speak up about what's not working as well as what is working, but you're unwilling to set that model to go first, then it's unlikely that they're going to really do it. And it's interesting because, I mean, uh... You see a lot of leaders out there, we won't necessarily name any names, but the, the last thing that they would ever admit to is vulnerability. And, you know, whether that's in politics and, in, or, in, or in business, and, and, and obviously what they're actually doing actually is, is, is not creating the, their environment, that they're going to hear that honest feedback, not just about them, but honest feedback from people that they're, you know, they're their employees effectively on, on what could potentially make the business better. That's right. And I think they're under the mistaken belief 
that that's a stance of strength, right? That, that, that coming off as if you have all the answers and as if you make no mistakes and all credit for good things are due to you, but all problems must be from someone else, that that comes off as being strong. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, we've all known uh, leaders like that, whether up close or from afar, and we don't find them admirable. We don't find them strong. In fact, we find them, you know, somewhere between pathetic and just not very compelling. And I guess that's really coming to the fore with the COVID-19 pandemic, which you, which you touched on actually already. You know, we're in the midst of what is the biggest remote working experiment in history and probably ever will be. Um, you know, what additional steps or nuances are needed to create psychological safety in, in virtual teams? You know, I think all of the above plus. And the plus is, you know, as long as we have to be working remotely, um, it does give us a few little tools that we can take advantage of, you know, whether those, those are um, the polls or the, the you know, the, the, the cold calls, the in- invitation for someone you can directly say, you know, David, I'd love to hear from you, um, or using, um, using the votes or the yes-no checks in certain, in certain platforms. So we might as well use these little tools that are there to prompt candor, to prompt voice. And also it can be hard for people, you know, if you're on a, a good size meeting, let's say somewhere between, you know, six and 12 people on a, on a, on a Zoom call, for instance, it's hard to know. It, it, you can't just spontaneously jump in uh, because there are little lags and every, you know, people might be doing that at the same time and it doesn't feel appropriate. In a way, it feels more like you're on a television screen and you should be asked to speak as opposed to that sort of informal feeling we have around a table where where we're leaning in and kind of um, adding and, and 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 offering and pushing back and all of that stuff spontaneously so without the spontaneity of face to face around a table um, i think it helps to to use some of the tools that are in these platforms um, to engage voice in a more thoughtful systematic way and I guess because, I mean, a lot of the organizations that we work with are doing more frequent pulsing polls on a weekly basis, some, some organizations, yes. which is great. But if you haven't created that climate of psychological safety, then you're not necessarily going to get honest answers back. And I guess in, in this particular climate, people are, are, fear, are fearful of losing their jobs. So they're probably even more inclined to, to, to say positive things and not really reveal some of the um, problems that are happening, and if if you don't know, you don't know, and you can't you can't do anything about it. That's right, and that's why I think you you really have to be explicit in the stage setting. You know, in every virtual meeting that you have, it's it's helpful to kind of restate the the situation in in a way like we've never been here before. This is really challenging. We don't know how we're going to get this project done working entirely virtu- virtually. Uh, so. Um, Ideas are welcome, right? Let, let, what, what, what do you think might work? And, and I think it's also helpful to do systematic things like rounds, just quick check-ins um, to find out where people are and to be extremely sympathetic to the possibility that people have all sorts of things going on behind the scenes um, that you're not aware of and that might impact their ability to focus in this exact moment. Yeah, because I suppose, you know, A, a lot of people haven't worked, for those people that are having to work remotely, a lot of them haven't worked remotely before. Managers are managing teams where maybe they've not had to manage 
a remote team before. They'd maybe have most of their people in front of them on most days. Um, and as you said, you know, they're, you know, we've, we've all children, we've a lot of children being off school as well. And if you're, if your partner's working as well, then suddenly you've got to share the, the, the teaching as well. Um, yes. and it's so important <laughs> that organizations are aware of that and managers are aware of that and, and, and then help employees, I guess. So it, it's, I guess it's, it, as I said, it really it magnifies the importance of psychological safety. It really does because, um, all of us, I mean, everyone is having to, talk about things that are more personal than in the past, you know, like my children are here um, needing help or my, my, um, my parent is not well or, you know, things that we wouldn't necessarily ordinarily bring into the workplace have to be brought into the workplace. So talk about vulnerability and, and space has to be created for that by necessity. And I think, you know, whether it's whether it's now in COVID or, 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 or hopefully when we move post COVID, which will be nice. You know, where does psychological safety fit into a broader set of suite of practices in the organization, such as learning and culture and, and innovation, I think? Right squarely in the middle of those things. But here, let me let me let me <laughs> let me back up and say psychological safety isn't a practice. It's yeah, it's a description of the climate or the environment. And like, for example, check-ins are a practice. Um, I suppose culture levers can be thought of as a practice if we were to get into what those are. Um, but psychological safety is a mechanism that very much helps explain why certain practices lead to certain outcomes, like innovation or like quality improvement. It's a, you know, the levers are things you can do. Uh, check-in at the beginning of a, of a meeting, for example. That check-in might create more of a sense of my voice is, is, um, is welcome here. And then that might allow me to raise a crazy idea during the meeting or to ask for help when I'm in over my head. And, and those kinds of behaviors um, will and lead to things like quality improvement or innovation or creativity and so forth. So, But the, I think the more important thing about that question is it's it's a spot on question because psychological safety is not a silver bullet it's not the sort of uh, panacea for for organizations they'll suddenly be fixed if they have psychological safety um, in fact most simply i think psychological safety needs to be paired with ambition is one way to put it but it needs to be paired with um, a motivation to really do great work Right. So if when I want to be very simple, I want to say the two things that leaders need to think about all the time are what have I done lately to enable excellence? You know, what 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 training, what coaching, what um, clarity about goals and so forth, all those things that we all need to do great work. And what have I done lately to create psychological safety where people aren't holding back? You know, they don't have one foot on the brake. And when you've got both of those dimensions going strong, then you're in, you know, in today's world, you're in the high performance zone. Yeah. And, and obviously, clearly, innovation is important to every organization in the world. But so is learning increasingly as well. I think there was some research that IBM um, did that they said that the, the average time it takes to close the skills gap, I think it increased from four days or something in 2014 to something like 35 days in 2018. Wow. So, Wow. Leaders yeah. need to, as you said, it's one of the key things that leaders need to be thinking about. Right. Well, just the other the other thing, you know, that's getting a lot of attention nowadays is the learning mindset or the growth mindset, Carol Dweck's work, as opposed to the fixed mindset. And lots of companies like Microsoft and, and others 
are quite eager to uh, to to help have their employees have a have a learning mindset or a growth mindset where they they understand that stretch assignments are ways to get you know smarter and better, not ways to be shown that you're not good enough. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. And then I think, wow, you know, a growth mindset really thrives in a psychologically safe environment. So growth mindset plus psychological safety seems like a another really synergy opportunity or formula for innovation and, and excellence. Yeah, because I suppose if you feel safe to take on new challenges and new tasks that maybe you're not an expert on and people are going to let you fail initially. Right. And that, that helps the individual, helps the organization grow as well. Right. I mean, if you think any failure will be a, you know, a, a demerit, a black mark on your, on your resume, then you won't do it, right? You'll be very thoughtful about only engaging in, you know, safe tasks. And, and that's what I call playing not to lose, right? And if you're playing not to lose, you're, you might succeed in not losing, but you don't win, you know, in, in, in the broader sense. So the majority of our listeners work in HR, um, not all of them, but, but, but the majority, you know, what, what is or, or, or maybe what should be the, the role of HR and people analytics teams um, thinking about actually measuring it as well in, t- in helping to create, grow and measure psychological safety and support leaders, I guess, in, in, in doing that. Yeah, so the three categories, and you said one of them already, is, are, are, you know, measure, training and coaching, I think. And, and measure, measure is, of course, important. And uh, many times when people think about measuring psychological safety, they'll, they'll write to me and they'll ask, you know, what's the right number that we need to hit like to, to have it? And I said, well, that's not necessarily the right question. I, I think the right question is, where is the variance in your company and why? And, and by variance, I mean, in every company I have ever been in and studied, what we find is real pockets of excellence and psychological safety uh, sprinkled throughout the company, but then the, the other groups or regions or business units or what have you don't have it, right? And the, the learning you can do from variance, I think, is so much more important than worrying about the means. Because people interpret survey items differently and, you know, one company might have a more cautious response or they don't, they just don't like to use the ends of the scale, for example, and another company does use the ends of the scale. So the means interpreted across companies can be somewhere between tricky and meaningless, but the variance within company is deeply meaningful because then that shows you where the bright spots are and you can kind of learn more about what the bright spot people are doing and help spread some of those practices across across the company to get to get everybody up, um, and and so you know training obviously speaks for itself. But I think giving people a little bit of uh, information about what this is, what it isn't, why it matters, is a deeply important aspect of the of the HR role, and and then coaching. And one of the things that is a real opportunity today is not feeling like you have to do all that work yourself. Um, but one of the most powerful ways, and Google did this, uh, you know, to coach people is train internal employees who have other jobs, you know, coding, new product development, um, engineers, whatever they might do in their regular role, um, train them to be coaches who volunteer some small portion of their time to go uh, hang out with other teams who have asked for help, right? And then they can sort of say, well, this is how it works in my team, and they can be a sounding board. Uh, because they're not part of 
of that immediate team. So one of the best ways to help the whole organization improve its skills is to leverage the internal people who have passion about this. And, and back to the variance thing, I think this is really where people analytics teams can come in because you know if you if you've got, for instance, and let's just make it really simple, if you've got several sales teams, but your data is telling you that we have created this this culture, this this psychological safe environment within this team, and look at this team's results in comparison to other teams where we're we're seeing from mm-hmm, our survey mm-hmm. and our data that we're not getting this, then that can, as you said, that, that can be used to inspire other teams, but also right. look at the you know what are the different traits between leaders, I guess, and also what the results could be um, by actually changing right right now the analytics can certainly help with that because they can point to performance differences as the google project aristotle famously did uh, and many other studies as well uh, performance differences between the high and low psychological safety teams you know in roughly the same type of of job and and then it i think that also helps people understand why this matters and right? if people are you know if one hand is tied behind their back they're not going to be performing as well. And a lot of it is about giving insights, isn't it? Because as a manager, you want your team to be successful. Hopefully you want your team to feel engaged and and happy in what they're doing as well. And if you get those insights that actually say, well, if you do X, you can expect Y to happen, then hopefully, you know, that will improve and change behavior effectively. Indeed. (laughs) Well, that's the the theory. That's that's the the idea. idea. So I suppose that, that leads on quite nicely to the next question. You know, what are the benefits typically enjoyed in organizations or teams rather? Because as you said, it might not necessarily be the whole organization that have created an embedded psychological safety. Well, you know, the, I think the first ones that come to mind, at least to me, are, are innovation um, and, and, and sort of uh, creativity. You know, people are unleashed uh, to be a little more outside the box and and by doing that with each other, they kind of can can make progress toward things that really are useful and viable. Um, so innovation is a, is a big one. But another kind of category, and of course, it depends on which industry you're in, which one of these is most meaningful, but failure prevention or error prevention or worker safety, which is a kind of error prevention, where people, when people are able to speak up, about the small things that seem to be slightly out of whack or the concerns they have that that doesn't seem to be right in some way and they they raise it rather than feel foolish in doing so. Or even more boldly, that they're willing to tell a fellow colleague or even a manager, don't do that. You need your safety glasses first, right? So there's a kind of ability when people are psychologically safe to prevent certain you know, failures that didn't need to happen. And we have many, many case studies of that. Um, and then, and then finally, I would say a big one is, um, is, is inclusion. Uh, psychological safety increasingly is a marker for people feeling and being included in important decisions and feeling a sense of belonging as well. Which I think that leads on quite nicely to obviously the current situation, you know, with the uh... Black Lives Matter and, the, you know, the highlighting that there's still too much racial injustice in, in our society, but also in our organisations as well. And I think the latest research from McKinsey shows that it's not just about diversity. It's about really driving those inclusion and sense of belonging, as you say, within teams. Right. Diversity is something we can measure reasonably easy. It's also a lever 
that with some effort we can pull, we can hire specifically for more diversity. Uh, but that doesn't mean instant inclusion, not even close. Inclusion happens when the diverse workforces that we take care to assemble actually are diversely represented in the important decisions, the important roles in the company. And finally, belonging is the, um, you know, the really the highest standard, which is that uh, everyone in your workforce feels that they really do belong in this company. And you highlight, again, so if we think about innovation, have you got any good examples of, of where, where you've seen that within organizations? Well, you know, the classic, a classic example, and this is one that I write about in, in the book, uh, The Fearless Organization, is, is Pixar. Right? Pixar, um, it, it's obviously an innovative uh, company. They've had something like 17 hit movies in a row in an industry where that's essentially unheard of. So they are innovative. They produce uh, something brand new that's never been seen before that is both critically and commercially successful, right? So that's that's innovation. And they do that both by creating an environment of psychological safety where people are unleashed to uh, express themselves, but also free to critique, um, you know, as, and they set it up very carefully so that people um, feel able to criticize the evolving product. Because if, you know, if, if, employees are looking at it and going, eh, I'm not moved. Uh, audiences won't be moved either. But if you don't want to hurt your colleagues' feelings or your boss's boss's feelings, um, you're going to hold back those kinds of ideas. So the, the Pixar case, which is almost a pure play case, if you will, because we all understand what they do. And it's, it's, you know, it's all they do is have innovation in a way they, um, in a way that um, a more traditional company, um, let's say an automotive company has R&D, has innovation, has a very real need for innovation, and it has a very real need for a whole lot of you know, routine and precise um, replication work. Um, so, but, but it's created, I think thinking about Pixar is helpful because it was in fact created um, with, with effort, right? With both, both by modeling, the right behaviors at the top of the organization by creating structures that invite voice and um, make it safe for people to, to speak up even when multiple layers of hierarchy in the room um, uh, and, and by just a habit of mind that says this is, this is how we roll, this is how we do it. And I suppose if you're, if you're going to make the efforts of being together a creative and cognitively, cognitively diverse team, you want them to actually be able to show that by being able to speak up about, you know, as you said, things that are great, um, co-creating stuff together, but also things as you, you know, particularly if you're making a Pixar film, things that maybe aren't so great and won't land with an audience. That's right. You know, and in, and in companies so often, um, the reason this is so challenging is that you can't, um, you know, you can never measure the success you didn't have. You know, let's say you have a whole lot of talented, you know, diverse thinkers in your organization, but you're not hearing from them and you didn't get some new innovation that you could have gotten. You'll never know that, no. right? It's the dog that didn't bark. And so many companies out there, I would argue, are unaware of all the value they're leaving behind. Right? They're unaware of the brilliance uh, that their employees have that they're not hearing from. And that's a real challenge. How do you, how do you, how do you try and mitigate, at least mitigate right. against that happening? Well, I think the best answer to that question is that in most organizations, you do have 
variance again, right? So you'll have higher and lower performers. And when you dig into some of the factors that are explaining those differences, you're likely to find kind of more engaged, more eager, and, um, you know, um, you know, just sort of more collegiality, more collaborativeness. In fact, I should have said that earlier. You said, what are some of the benefits? Because it's so, I take it so for granted, I didn't even mention it, but um, probably the primary benefit of psychological safety is better teamwork. You know, when I feel able to be with you and, you know, bring my full self and my my full set of ideas and concerns to work, um, then you and I are just off and running. And I suppose in, in Pixar, that would be, you know why was this a, why was this a hit film why wasn't this a hit film it might not that's be right. purely or, or, down to that but it might be a that's good, right. good place to you start know as say because a, a film is a pretty big investment and a, it's a pretty big project um, but along the way there would be scenes that would be not so compelling and scenes that would be more compelling so you get to learn from the variance you know within a really large initiative like that as well as the variance between them and and probably another example that's useful, I studied at some length at a children's hospital in, in the U.S. Um, that did a very significant attempt to change the culture, a successful attempt uh, to make it more psychologically safe. Because what they were interested in was not that, of course. What they were interested in was patient safety. And the leaders had the recognition that without psychological safety to speak up about errors, then patients were more at risk than they'd be otherwise. And this is a good um, illustration of the overall phenomenon because at a place like Children's Hospital, which is a big 17-site organization, there's lots of variants. I mean, you can find, you know, spectacularly creative and open and engaged people over here and very top-down, authoritarian, anxious people over there. And so part of the Part of the change journey was about just not one practice, you know, not one, okay, here's a training, we want everybody to do it. But I counted something like 35 different levers, uh, some bigger, some smaller, that were moved to change that culture. You know, things, everything from focus groups to offering a new set of terms that people should use to talk about accidents rather than um, than um what's the word i guess it's errors versus accidents right accident implying that something happened um and error implying that there is a culprit who did it um uh, to um you know a little bit of training um and and uh, some sort of um teams that would review things and you know just a lot of different activities and slowly but surely the culture changes and then the patients indeed get safer yeah, which you can't want better for that in you know in a, in a right. hospital environment. So, right. so actually, you know, I'll give a great example, obviously, of of creativity and innovation and and of mitigating risk. I think the other one you were talking about was inclusiveness. Is it, is it, if you come across probably have, but you know, what's a good example of a, of an organisation that's kind of created that inclusiveness? Well, you know, it's it's. Um... The recent events um, in the U.S. especially uh, make me want to reach for an example that is purely about um, race, but I don't have one. Um, but uh, in in the book, I do talk about Uber's uh, turnaround on the issue of sexual harassment and discrimination. Um, and they once once they discovered, which they discovered very publicly and painfully with a 
um, sort of a, um, a case of Susan Fowler, an engineer who's, who um, was subject to um, unwelcome harassment, obviously all harassment's unwelcome, by her manager. HR did nothing about it. Um, and even said, well, we're not going to, he's a high performer, you know, the classic, um, but just inexcusable response. Um, and, uh, the, uh, the company took note and, and, uh, went to great effort, uh, to, uh, to try to change that. I wouldn't say they're perfect. I wouldn't say anyone's perfect, but it was a concerted effort. Right? And, and, um, and driven especially by, and by the way, I love, Pointing this out because an aspect of of psychological safety is being tough on bad behavior, right? It's not um, it's not just encouraging good behavior. It's when people uh, do things that are, um, are 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 wrong and against our values and and uh, against our behavioral standards. Um, we there's consequence uh, for that, and um, and and so um, if you really want there to be a feeling of inclusion by all groups. You've got to really punish, to use that word, the people who are excluding um, people in, in, in other groups. And I guess if that is systemic in your organization, it's admitting that organizationally you've, you've not done the right thing, but admitting it, then do something about it and showing that you've done something about it. Exactly. And the admitting it is so important, right? It's just being able to say, wow, um, we were wrong. Um, we did this and, and now we're committed to doing better and we need your help. Yeah. Well, hopefully we will see some good examples of inclusiveness as we, as we go through this crisis. It does certainly seem from the outside looking in that a lot of, lot of organizations are really getting behind this. So, uh, which is not before time, it has to be said, but yes. hopefully no. we'll, we'll see some good <laughs> examples. Um, an explosion of task forces. <laughs> and I think with, with COVID-19 and, and the Black Lives Matter movement and the whole topic around um, trying to get, get rid of this race or injustice that we've got within our organisations, there's a lot of talk about transparency. So I'd be interested, what's the relationship between psychological safety and transparency? You know, they are partners in a, I will say, virtuous cycle. Right? So transparency um, is... What is enabled by psychological safety and practicing transparency, being open and clear and, dare I say it again, vulnerable about what we know, what's going on, what we don't know, um, builds psychological safety. Good. I mean, and, and I think certainly some of the companies that we're working with, big companies as well, I think with COVID-19 in particular, because have heard more stories about that it's leaders actually coming out at all hands and saying we've not faced anything like this before you know we're, we're doing this because we think it's the right thing but we want to, we'd love to hear from you are we doing the right, right. thing you know and, and and actually inviting as you said at right at the start inviting participation i i think one of the most powerful things that leaders at any level could say is um i need your help right because it's 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 humble it's vulnerable and it's honest um, and it's an invitation. Yeah. And it'll be interesting, I guess, hopefully as we get out, out of this crisis, um, you know, in the, and in years to come, academics like you will do studies on, on different organisations and look at the variances perhaps. And, and right. we may find that, that those who put employees at the forefront are those ones that may maybe got out of the crisis quicker and recovered quicker. But 
that's my hypothesis. I hopefully you'll be able to test it, Amy. I think it's a darn good hypothesis. <laughs> um, so this leads nicely onto the, this is the question we're asking all of our guests on the show in the series at the moment. So in the wider context and in the work that you do, what can HR do to drive more value? You know, I think it's its own HR needs to own its strategic role in the company to drive more value. And really, let's let, let's be real. Right? We are in the knowledge era. Um, nothing is more important than the people in the company. That's the, that's where the source of value creation comes from. And therefore, the people who are most expert in people management and people development, who are HR, are in an absolutely crucial role uh, to help shape the future of the organization. I think that starts with taking reality seriously, meaning we are in what has been famously called a VUCA environment, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And if you really take that seriously and you help as an HR leader, help your colleagues recognize that that threatens the old mindset of, you know, sort of top down and command and control, tell people what to do, divide and conquer. It threatens it absolutely, right? It simply won't work. What we need now is much more of a, you know, uh, test and learn and test and learn and, and small cycle testing where we find out what works quickly so as to scale it well and find out what doesn't work quickly so as to cut it down, right? So, so HR can help their colleagues keep wrestling with reality, why it needs all of the employees to be much more like scientists than, you know, order followers, and then help with building the tools and processes to promote contribution and collaboration to, to support the shared goals of the enterprise. And as a guest, back to what we talked about throughout our conversation, really, actually being at the forefront of understanding variance within the organization and, and trying to understand what drives high performance, maybe because there is a psychologically safe culture within certain teams, and then trying to understand that and help the organization through communication, through learning to actually pick that up elsewhere. That's right. And, and if you think about it, interpersonal skills are at a premium today, because doing the kinds of things that we've been talking about in this program of being direct and being humble and being curious, take a lot of interpersonal skill. You know, for example, they take helping people have the skills to not just say what they think, but to also stop and ask others what they think, right? That that's, you know, skillful people do that. And HR is the place where those kinds of skills and mindsets get promulgated. Great. Well, Amy, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much for taking time out. Um, how can people stay in touch with you and follow you on social media? Well, at, on Twitter, I'm at Amy C. Edmondson and, and at Work Fearlessly. I'm also on LinkedIn, of course. And there's the Harvard Business School uh, website where you'll find my faculty page and, and a great deal more detail. And you mentioned the book, The Fearless Organization. Uh, that's been out for a while now, hasn't it? So people can get that. It has. It was 2019. You can do that. And by the way, we also have uh, set up a what we call a Fearless Organization Scan. Um, easy to find the website. Just Google Fearless Organization Scan. And you can sort of uh, just go on and and, uh, and use the survey instrument and, and, and get a little feedback from it. Great. Well, we'll, we'll make sure we put the links in the, the material that we send out to accompany the podcast. Amy, thank you very much for your time and stay safe, stay well. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show in your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the MyHR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR, and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the MyHR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Thomas Tremoro Primusic about the critical role leaders play in times of crisis and change. So don't miss that one. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.